We're in our main message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order across the life of Jesus because we want to know everything he taught, said, and did for ourselves. We don't want to know about it from somebody else. We want to see it in his words so that we can know him for ourselves. And last week, we saw Jesus miraculously feed a crowd of around 4,000 men, which means there was probably somewhere between 10 and 16,000 people when you factor in women and children. And in that miracle, we were reminded that Our God is not the God of just enough. He's not the God of just getting by. He's the God of more than enough. He's a God of abundance. He's not limited in any way. He knows our situation. He cares about our situation. And he has the miraculous power to change our situation. And this week, we're going to be reminded of a life-changing principle in the area of faith. If you can do this, This one thing we're going to be talking about today, faith will thrive in your life, even in the most difficult of circumstances. So focus in. This is going to be really important. Let's begin. We're in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. And Mark's Gospel, I put it on your outline, adds the detail that at this moment, Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. And the reason Jesus sighed was because he could have sarcastically said, you know, sorry guys, I need to take a nap. I'm too tired from just miraculously feeding 4,000 people, healing lepers, giving sight to the blind and so forth. Yeah, I'm too tired from doing that to give you a sign right now. Sorry guys. He doesn't do that because he's more gracious than I am. But these Pharisees refused to see the evidence that Jesus was God that was all around them. Every time God would call them to a faith, they would respond by asking for another sign. Just one more piece of evidence. Jesus sighed because this is our first fill-in. Miraculous signs follow people who believe. Miraculous signs follow people who believe, but miraculous signs do not make people believe. Miraculous signs follow people who believe, but miraculous signs do not make people believe. The Bible tells us that we're called to walk by faith and not by sight. One can just as truly say we are called to walk by faith and not by signs. The world says, if I can see it, then I'll believe it. The Bible says, if you believe it, then you will see it. Signs don't produce faith. They only produce a hunger for more signs. As God's word says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's God's word that builds our faith, not signs. Signs follow those who already have faith. And speaking of signs, Jesus had given a fairly substantial sign in his ministry when he raised Lazarus from the dead. That's a pretty good sign, right? Nobody, even the Pharisees, debated that Lazarus had been dead. He had been dead a while. Everybody agreed. No, Lazarus, D-E-A-D. The dude was dead. Jesus raised him from the dead. The Pharisees knew that. They could have gone and talked to Lazarus. He was alive. He was on the scene still. But what was their response? Let me read to you from John's gospel. It says, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. So they went and told the Pharisees, Jesus just raised a guy from the dead. Then skipping ahead a few verses, notice their response. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. 
They plotted to put him to death. Would you agree that the sign did not produce faith in those who did not desire to believe? Didn't change them at all because signs don't produce faith. If someone doesn't want to serve Jesus, no sign will ever be good enough. It'll never be good enough. But if a person sincerely desires to know God, then no obstacle will stop God from bringing that person into their family. Voltaire, the famous French infidel, was so bitter towards Christianity, it was claimed that he said, even if a miracle should be wrought in the open marketplace before a thousand sober witnesses, I would rather mistrust my senses than admit a miracle took place. That's the mentality of the person who is unwilling to believe. Interestingly, because God has a sense of humor, Voltaire also said, in 100 years from now, Christianity will be a thing of the past and the only Bibles will be in museums. 20 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society purchased his house to be used to print the Bible. Later, it became the Paris headquarters for the British and Foreign Bible Society. Just because God has a sense of humor. For us as a church, we believe that God is powerful and supernatural and performs miracles today. We believe that emphatically, but our lives are not about chasing miracles. Our lives are about chasing Jesus. We believe emphatically that miracles will follow those who believe. We believe God will do and is doing miracles in this church, but those miracles will naturally happen as the byproduct of our increasing faith in Jesus. Signs follow those who follow Jesus. So our focus is simply going to be on following Jesus. Verse two, he answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. You cannot discern the signs of the times. The rabbis at this time taught that demons could actually perform earthly miracles, could make trees grow, do all kinds of things on the earth, but only God could perform a miracle in the sky. So only God could make a cloudy day clear, only God could turn the day into night. That was their superstitious belief. So when these Pharisees were asking Jesus for a sign from heaven, they were actually saying, okay, so you fed a bunch of people, you healed a leper, you raised a dead guy, you might still be a demon. So show us a sign from heaven to prove that you're not. To which Jesus responds, you know, speaking of the sky, guys, you're able to predict the weather just by seeing the signs in the sky, but you can't spot the signs in the scriptures, the very things that you're supposed to be the leading experts on. You see, all the way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel in chapter nine, the prophet Daniel had predicted to the day when the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem as king. And these were the experts in the scriptures. That prophecy in Daniel is the reason people are waiting for Jesus in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. You can read the story. Nobody goes and gathers a crowd. They're waiting for him because they know about the prophecy. But only a few people actually believe it. There's over 300 prophecies specifically about Jesus the Messiah in the Old Testament. And Jesus says, guys, you can look at the sky and read the signs, but you can't even look at the scriptures and see the signs in there because if you could, you would know it's time for the Messiah to be here. And so I'm obviously him. And there's a lot in there we could talk about, about the age that we live in, because Jesus still expects us to recognize the signs of his next coming as well. And there are even more in the scriptures about his second coming than there were about his first. 
as it is in our day, being smart and being wise are not the same thing. How many of you know there are many smart fools and there are many wise, dumb men? And I'm blessed to count myself among the latter. For as the word says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. These were very smart men who didn't have an ounce of wisdom. Smart men without an ounce of wisdom. Jesus continues in verse four, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. The sign of the prophet Jonah. This is interesting. You've probably heard the story of Jonah and the whale. If you're raised in church, then you probably want to jump in and say, it wasn't a whale, it was a big fish. Let's just clear that up right now. If you don't know the story, Jonah was a prophet who God called to go to the city of Nineveh to preach to this group of people, to call on them to turn back to God and repent from their wicked ways. Jonah didn't want to do it, so he hopped on a ship and ran in the literal opposite direction. As a result of that disobedience to God, there's a storm. As a result of the storm, Jonah ends up being tossed overboard where he is swallowed by a large fish. And I always think we don't get this. We always have like the pictures like he's sitting on a, a stool, like inside the belly of this fish with like a candle. You always see those? It would have been like being buried alive. It would have been cold. It would have been pitch black. It would have been like being in a womb as an adult, unable to move. It would have smelled horrible. It would have been suffocating, like being buried alive. So Jonah spends three days in the belly of the fish before the fish brings him up. And he's literally brought back from the dead, given a second try. So Jesus predicted too, by mentioning Jonah, that he would be in the grave. He would be dead for three days, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days before he returned to the land of the living. It's worth noting that Jesus has predicted the exact number of days that he will be in the grave. He had done this earlier in his ministry when he had said, destroy this temple, speaking of himself, and in three days I will raise it up. As a side note, this is how we know that Jesus didn't actually die on a Friday. Because you can do the math any way you want, but you can't fit three days and three nights between Friday and Sunday. If you're doing the math right, Jesus actually would have been crucified on a Thursday because we know for a fact that he was raised on a Sunday. Sorry if I just rocked your world and destroyed your faith. Everything's going to be okay, I promise. It doesn't change anything. Good Friday is still Good Friday. You can still take it off work. Jesus tells, the, uh, <laughs> Jesus tells the Pharisees and Sadducees, he says, guys, you want a sign? Watch closely. Watch closely. I'm going to give you a sign. I'll be dead in the grave for three days. Then I'll come back from the dead. That's the sign I'm going to give you. And I think we'd all agree that should suffice. That should suffice their request for a sign. And when I was studying this, I couldn't help thinking about Babe Ruth, the legendary Yankees baseball player. There's many myths, many legends about the Bay, but perhaps the most famous one is the time he calls his own home run. Probably some of you are sports nuts, you know the story. So the legend goes, he comes up to the plate in a game, he takes his bat, and as the pitcher's getting ready to pitch, he points to like the outfield, to a spot. And what he's doing is he's pointing to where he's gonna hit a home run. The pitcher throws the pitch and there's nothing he can do about it. He just cranks it and hits a home run exactly where he pointed. And everyone loves that story because we're drawn to the idea that you could have that much power over your own future, that much power over your own destiny, even in something as flippant as a baseball game. So in my mind, even though it's not recorded in scripture, I think Jesus just 
made the greatest prediction ever. And so after three days, when the angels roll away the tomb, it's not recorded, but I believe that Jesus walks out and he goes, called it. And that's the first two words that Jesus says after his resurrection. Best prediction ever. I'm convinced that's how it happened. Let's continue in verse five. It says, now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. So they're going on a, a lengthy journey. Everyone's getting hungry. They don't have any bread. Then Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus makes a deep, profound statement. These not so deep and not so profound disciples say, I love this. And they reasoned among themselves saying, it's because we've taken no bread. That's why he's saying that. He's talking about the fact we've forgotten bread. You gotta love the disciples, but before we're too hard on them, we've got to remember they were all teenagers. Historians tell us that John was most likely 12 when he starts following Jesus. They're just teenagers. And if you've ever had a teenage son, or you have a teenage son, or you've worked with teenage boys, you know we're just space cadets sometimes. We're just, there's like nothing going on. My wife and I always joke about the fact that even as men, we have a serious advantage over a woman because we have the nothing box, which is a place we can go. And I can't even get Charlene to understand this because she's like, what does the nothing box look like? I'm like, you do not fathom the profoundness of the nothing box. It doesn't look like anything. What are you doing there? Nothing. How do you, how do you get there? Can't explain it. You know, it's too deep, too deep. I can only tell you there's nothing in there. What are you thinking? Nothing. Nothing. Now she understands that that's actually possible to think nothing. I don't think she believed me for the first five years of our marriage. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm really thinking nothing. It's a magical place. I wish I could take you there, but I can't because it's the nothing box. They're space cadets. And this makes me really appreciate the ministry of Jesus even more because he's so patient. It blows your mind when you think this is who he chose to invest in. Teenagers. Dumb teenagers who are just slow to get it. But Jesus grabs them when they're at their most moldable and impressionable. And this is why they're so zealous. In some things, they're so gung-ho. It's because they just got raging hormones and testosterone like going through their body. They're like always ready to fight. They're always ready to do something. There's no filter in their speech. And, and that's why. They're just teenage dudes figuring it out. But if I'm honest, the disciples have just made a mistake that I make a lot too. And it's this, instead of choosing to consistently focus on the spiritual reality of things, I choose to focus on the physical reality of things. Instead of choosing to be preoccupied with the spiritual, I find myself preoccupied with the physical world all the time. And maybe you're like me, I'm so quick to count my physical and material blessings and so slow to count my spiritual blessings, even though all those material blessings are temporary and are going to pass away. But the spiritual blessings I have in Christ are going to last forever. It's one of the reasons Advent is so wonderful. And it's the same reason I love coming to church. Because I'm reminded whenever we gather together that my greatest blessings are spiritual and they're eternal. I don't know about you, but I need that reset button pushed on the inside of me on a regular basis. I don't wake up focused on spiritual things. I don't know if any of us wake up that way. If you do, you're awesome, but I don't. 
It's a consistent challenge to think that way. When we come to church, when we worship together, when we open God's word together, when we pray together, when we take communion together, everything realigns and everything gets refocused. And we remember that the greater reality is the spiritual reality of things. It's Jesus. And the only reason I really have for joy is Jesus and the fact that he's in my life. Do you always look for the physical solution or the physical explanation? You know, far too many times in my life, I've been racking my brain over a situation saying, what's going on? What's going on? Why isn't this working? Why can't I fix this? Why can't I find a solution for this? And here's what happens most of the time. The Holy Spirit comes to me after I've been going crazy for a while. And it's like the Holy Spirit just says, Jeff, is there anything else going on in the spiritual? Maybe. Maybe there's something you're not thinking about or seeing. And I realize I haven't even considered that there might be a spiritual angle to this situation. Even though the Apostle Paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. The Apostle Paul in the Word of God tells us again and again and again what goes on in the spiritual world affects the physical world. It is affecting our relationships. It is affecting our homes. It is affecting our families. It is affecting our work relationships. It's affecting those things. And if the root cause is spiritual and all we focus on is the physical, often we're not going to get the breakthrough we're looking for. That's one of the reasons we're doing 21 days of prayer in January. Because I know that some of you are like me and you've got these issues. You've got this one thing and you've been doing everything you can in the physical to try and figure it out, to try and fix it. And perhaps the Lord is waiting for you and I to take some action in the spiritual. The disciples are just doing what we do a lot of the time. So we know Jesus is talking about something deeper than literal bread. So what's he talking about? We're going to find out in just a few verses. But in verse 8, it says, Jesus, being aware of it, being aware of the situation, said to them, Oh, you of little faith, why do you reason? However your Bible says it, I want you to underline that word. Why do you reason among yourselves? Because you have brought no bread. The word that's used there in the original language for reason means to reckon thoroughly, to deliberate by reflection or discussion. So they're not making a passing comment like, oh, we forgot to bring bread. They're talking about it over and over and over. We've got no bread. What are we going to do? I'm getting hungry. There's nowhere we can get food right now. What are we going to do? We might starve to death out here. You know, they're really, really worried about this. They're going on and on and on about it. And apparently Jesus lets them talk about it for some time. He lets it go on. Because he's waiting to see if they're going to remember a couple of things. They don't. So in verse 9, Jesus goes on and explains what he was hoping the disciples would remember. This is what he says, verse 9. Do you not yet understand or remember, underline remember, or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the 4,000? And how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? Jesus' response to their fear and their concern about their lack of bread is to say, guys, let's take a trip down memory lane. Cue the flashback montage. And Jesus walks them through two incredible miracles that have recently happened that they were participants in. 
They were miracles where they saw Jesus meet the practical, physical needs of people. Very similar to the situation they're in, which is bread. Jesus just did a miracle with bread. And now they're in their next challenging situation, their next faith challenge. And they are choosing to completely ignore God's track record of faithfulness in their lives. Have you ever been there? Has your mind ever said, you know, no, no, it's not that I'm not having faith. I'm, I'm just being a realist. I'm just being reasonable in my assessment of the situation. But the truth is, you're completely ignoring God's track record of faithfulness in your life. You're turning a blind eye to all the evidence that indicates God will be faithful yet again. You're ignoring that and then evaluating the situation. Because if you looked at that evidence, you would come to the conclusion that God is faithful and he will be again. Jesus is teaching the disciples a principle, a truth that can change your life today. Write this down. Instead of rehearsing the problem, remember and speak of God's history of faithfulness. Instead of rehearsing the problem, instead of talking about it over and over and over, speak of God's history of faithfulness. Talk about that over and over and over. Jesus says, guys, why, why are you talking about this? Other translations, it says, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Why do you discuss this? Because they had heard Jesus say, your heavenly father knows what you have need of before you even ask. So he says, why, why are you discussing it? And then he provides the solution, which is apparently remembering what God has done in the past, how he's been faithful in the past. So for you and I, we just need to begin to go over those times in our mind again. We, remember, we need to go back and think of all the dark times that God has already brought us through. All the times we're feeling desperate and hopeless and we trusted God and he came through for us. My heart breaks for you if you have none of those times. Because the only reason you don't have any of those times is if you've never trusted God with anything other than your salvation. Salvation is just the beginning. I believe every day God finds a new way to ask us the question, do you trust me? Do you trust me? All you have to do to be a disciple of Jesus is just keep saying yes to Jesus. Just keep saying yes. And he'll say, I want you to do this. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And if you have trouble remembering those things, let me be very direct. You need to make a journal. You don't have to write in there, dear diary, today was a low day for me. You don't have to do that. All you need to have is a journal where all you keep in it are the times God came through for you, the times God blessed you in a tangible way, the answered prayers. Write those things down because when your life hits crisis there are very few things that will build your faith in that moment like a written factual record of God's faithfulness in the past just as we all have the goal I was going to say you know we all have an emergency fund of finances and then I thought you know I don't and I'm sure a bunch of you don't either but we all have the goal of an emergency financial fund in our lives because we all know that at any given moment we could drive into somebody. We could drive, a pole or a tree could jump in the middle of the road and attack our car. We, we know that, that these emergencies in life can happen. And so we understand with money, it would be good to be prepared for that. A journal of God's faithfulness is the spiritual equivalent of that. It's knowing that, you know what? There will be another crisis. There will be another dark time. And I need to know where I can go to get help in that time. 
so that I can speak of the faithfulness of God and get my mind right. I'm not talking about living in denial. That's why I love the translation that says, where Jesus says, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Jesus doesn't talk about something ridiculous like imagining that there is no problem. He doesn't say, you have an abundance of bread. Jesus says, no, it's a fact. You have no bread. Jesus says, I'm not denying it's a fact. I just want to know why you keep talking about it. I'm talking about acknowledging the reality of the situation. What we tend to do is we tend to acknowledge a partial reality. This is a partial reality. I have a massive problem. That's a partial reality. Here's the full reality. I have a massive problem, but my God is greater than my problem. That's the full reality. And what our enemy wants to do is he wants to get us to focus on the partial reality and meditate on the partial reality, meditate and fixate on the problem. And if you only meditate on the problem, you'll become defeated and discouraged. But if you'll meditate on God's history of faithfulness in your life, you'll inevitably realize that what you're facing is simply the next situation. And it's simply the next challenge where God will be faithful yet again. And when you have a journal, you're able to say, Lord, thank you that this is simply the next thing I'm going to be writing in my journal. Because you will be faithful again. In the book of Hebrews, we're told something really amazing about Abraham. And if you don't know the story, Abraham and his wife Sarah couldn't have kids. Eventually, God gives them a miracle child, a son Isaac, in their old age. And when Isaac is a young man, God asks Abraham to put Isaac on an altar and kill him. And you're thinking, that's a little bit dark, Jesus, don't you think? Nobody has that on a coffee mug for some reason. But what God wanted to do is he wanted to test Abraham. He says, Abraham, let's find out if you value me more than the son. We all love our kids, but there's something extra special when you only have one and it was a miracle that you got that one. God says, put that on the altar. He has no intention of letting Abraham kill Isaac. And God makes sure that right before he can do it, it stopped. It stopped. But you're still left with this question like, okay, what kind of dad would put the kid on the altar and kill him? Why would he do that? And in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, we're told why Abraham did that. We're told what his reasoning was. This is what it says. It says, it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham, and you might want to underline this because this is on your outline, Abraham reasoned, he reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. So Abraham is not being flippant or uncaring about the life of his son. In Abraham's mind, the only reason God would ask him to sacrifice his son was if God was planning on bringing him back to life again afterwards. And that was the reasoning, the logic in Abraham's mind. He was that sure of God's power. He was that sure of God's character. And I believe that's what God is asking us to do. He's asking us to look at the evidence, his faithfulness in our life up to this point. And he's asking us to say, guys, you having faith in me, if you're living the Christian life, should sooner or later reach the point where having faith in me isn't a leap, it's logical. And that's the real goal of faith, is to get to the point where it's not like, man, I gotta really stretch myself to trust God one more time. It might be like that in the early days. But if you keep trusting God, you should arrive sooner or later at the point where you're trusting God 
not even because it's a faith issue, just because it's a logical issue. And you're saying, you know, he's always come through for us. He has always come through for us. It would be illogical. It would be unreasonable for me to make the assumption that this time will be the exception. Our reasoning within ourselves should be, listen, he's always taking care of me. He promised he'd never leave me. So I'm not going to freak out about it because that would be illogical. That would be illogical. The apostle Paul really knew how to do this. He was in prison, in chains, under the tyrannical emperor Nero when he wrote his second letter to Timothy. We just read this yesterday in our men's group. I love this verse. Timothy was the young protege of Paul. He was the pastor Paul had put in charge of the church in Ephesus. And from prison, in chains, Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, you know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. And he's in prison right now. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. So he's been through hard times in the past. Paul is in chains right now. How does he frame in his mind all those things that are in his past? This is what he says. But the Lord rescued me from all of it. The Lord rescued me from all of it. So in prison, yet again, in another dark time, in another faith challenge, Paul speaks of God's history of faithfulness in his life to build his own faith, not just the faith of Timothy. Paul says, listen, I'm in chains right now, but I've been persecuted everywhere I've been. I've been in prison in all these cities, but the Lord has rescued me from all of them. Paul has taken note of God's faithfulness in his life. And so he's not defeated. He's not downcast. He's not depressed. He's not woe is me. He's not having a pity party. He is in prison ministering to other people, encouraging other people. And he's in prison. It's incredible. In the business world, in the area of human resources, hiring and firing, there's one thing a person needs to know when it comes to hiring and firing to be good at human resources. Some of you might know this if you're in the business world. It's this principle. The greatest indicator of future performance is previous performance. Here's what that means. If you hire a guy who has been fired from his last three jobs for being lazy, it is not likely that he will incredibly turn around his work ethic just because he's working for you. Why? Because previous performance is the greatest indicator of future performance. Can a person change? Yes, but sadly that's the exception. So what has God's previous performance, so to speak, been in our lives? In 2 Timothy 2.13, Paul writes this to Timothy, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Because God, the person of the Holy Spirit, is living inside of us. If God says, no, I'm done with you, Paul is saying he would be saying that to himself. He would be disowning himself because he's in us. And he's not gonna do that. God's not gonna turn his back on himself. He says, so even when we're faithless, God remains faithful. And the Bible tells us Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was faithful yesterday. He is faithful today. He will be faithful forever. He'll be faithful tomorrow. I believe Jesus is telling the disciples something he's often told me. It goes something like this. Jeff, I've been faithful. And in this situation, I'll be faithful again. The only question is, are you going to be faithful or fearful. 
But Jeff, the storm is going to end, and when it does, you'll be on the other side of this lake. That's how it's going to end. The only question is if you're going to get there freaking out like a crazy person or lying down and taking a nap knowing that I've got it. Your choice, how you want to get there. But here's what I can guarantee you. I'm going to be faithful. I haven't got that down perfectly yet, but I'm getting better. My percentage is going up. I realize that this season can end with my foot in my mouth, with God one more time telling me, Jeff, really, when are you just going to believe me? Or I can just say, hey, you've always been faithful. You'll always be faithful. You never change. So I'm just going to trust you got this. I'm going to go take a nap, rest, get some sleep. Whenever you find yourself feeling overwhelmed or spiritually suffocated by a challenging situation, begin to recall God's faithfulness in your life. Speak it out loud. Pray it out loud. Think of all those times he's come through for you. Thank him specifically that he's going to get you through whatever you're facing right now. He will. It will change your mindset. You'll feel it. And when someone says, you know, you're in this situation, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? We need to get comfortable giving the answer, you know, I have no idea. I don't know. But I do know God is faithful. He's always been faithful, and he always will be. So tonight, I'm going to lay my head down and sleep like a baby. Not because I have the solution, but because the God who does loves me and is always faithful to me. In Mark's gospel, it adds this detail to what Jesus is saying to the disciples. Jesus says, it's on your outline, is your heart still hardened? That's worth underlining. Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When Jesus says, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? He's making it clear that these disciples have everything they need to walk by faith. They have the ability. They have the potential. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is the first question Jesus asks. Is your heart still hardened? Write this down. Jesus tells us there is a connection between a hardening of heart and a failing of memory. There is a connection between a hardening of heart and a failing of memory. In previous messages over the last few weeks, we've talked about how salvation works, and it can happen that when a person is unwilling to believe, they will become unable to believe eventually. And the same is true in this area. When a person is unwilling to remember God's faithfulness, they will eventually become unable to remember God's faithfulness, and their heart will become hard, and it will block the miraculous in their lives. Here's the good news. To keep your heart full of faith, there's really only one thing you need to remember. The journals are good. They're worth doing. But there's really only one thing you need to remember. And it's this, that Jesus has saved you. He has saved you. And if he could overcome sin and death, then what you're facing right now is no big deal. It's part of the power of communion. Every week you can come here, you can take that and you can be reminded, God, you solved the problem of my sin. You solved the problem of me being separated from you for eternity. So I think you can handle my debt. I think you can cover that. I think that's not too big. 
Remember the daily bread of salvation that Jesus gives you. Your heart won't become hard. It won't become hard. For some of you here today, that's the one thing you need to do. When we worship after this, you need to go back, get the elements of communion, take communion, and just thank God, hey, you solved my greatest need. The need I have right now can't even compare. So God, I have no question you can solve this current problem as well. You just need to be reminded of the power of God. We talk about this all the time here at New Hope, but where does faith come from? As we said, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So faith comes from hearing the word of God, from taking it in. Write this down. There's a connection between what we consistently hear and what we believe. There's a connection between what we consistently hear and what we believe. Have you ever seen the infomercials? You might remember in the 80s, if you're as old as I am, there was this whole movement where you could buy these cassette tapes and you'd fall asleep with your Walkman, dating myself again, you'd fall asleep with your Walkman listening to a voice telling you things like, you are a strong, powerful man. You are very attractive. You are successful. You can be anything you want to be. And the idea is that if you listen to this over and over while you were sleeping, you would wake up and believe it. My favorite infomercial of all time is a product called Cheers to You. And all it is, 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 a, uh, um, is a CD of noises of crowd cheering and clapping and a voice telling you that it's for you. So you're amazing. You're incredible. And in the infomercial, they have the guy with the headphones on and he's, he's doing this, getting like really, really pumped up. <laughs> it's so funny in my head right now. And uh, it's all based on this truth that what we hear over and over again, we actually come to believe. We actually come to believe it. Do you realize that you never hear things more clearly than when you're the one saying them? Because they've already come from your subconscious. They've already come from your belief system and you are hearing them. So what you speak out, you are hearing better than anybody else. So the things you speak are going back into you again and having an effect on you. It's this cycle, and it's a cycle that will work for you or it's a cycle that will work against you. But there is a massive connection between what you hear consistently and what you believe. When you speak things out loud, they go into you. And so you need to really ask yourself, what are you consistently saying about that one situation, that one problem, that one relationship? What are you consistently saying? What's your confession when you talk about it? Are you sharing the partial reality, I have a massive problem? Or are you sharing the full reality, I have a massive problem, but my God is greater than my problem? Or is it just, I don't know how we're going to get past this. I don't know how we're going to fix this. I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what we're going to do. Think carefully about what you're making yourself hear over and over again. There's one other possibility in this situation that I think is worth mentioning. When Jesus fed the 5,000 and the 4,000, those situations weren't anybody's fault. It's not like Jesus had told the disciples, guys, we're going out to minister today. Make sure you pack food for 20,000, okay? Let's meet back here in an hour. It didn't happen. It was nobody's fault. It was a spontaneous need that arose. In this situation, the lack of bread is due to somebody screwing up. The disciples couldn't come together and handle it. It's one of these situations where it's like, I thought you had it. I thought, I thought, you, were gonna, I thought you were gonna do it. Oh, man, Jesus is gonna kill us. And so it's possible that what they're thinking is, yeah, Jesus will jump in and help when it's nobody's fault, but Jesus isn't gonna jump in 
and fix this situation because we created the problem. And it's possible that what the disciples are wrestling with is something you and I often wrestle with, which is, man, I know God will help me for the things that weren't my fault, the spontaneous cancer, but, but I, I don't think God is really going to want to help me when I'm the one who created the problem. And we have a view of God like he's the hardline parent. Well, you made a horrible mistake in buying a car with a payment that high. So now every time you make that payment, you will realize the horrible mistake you made. And then when you rule with me in eternity, you'll never make a bad car deal again. And so that's, that, that's, that's what God is trying to do, or he's this tough guy. And perhaps the disciples are thinking he's not really interested in solving a problem we created. Man, I have been there. We all know that feeling where we think, I can't even go to God and ask him to fix this because this is all my fault. And he's just going to let me lie in the bed that I've made so that I learn my lesson and learn his ways are best. But Jesus reveals something here that apparently, apparently, write this down, Jesus even cares about the problems I get myself into. Apparently, Jesus even cares about the problems I get myself into. When you find yourself thinking that, I want you to remember the reason we are believers, the reason we love Jesus is because of the good news of the gospel, which is this. We did not get what we deserve. Instead, we received what we did not deserve. That is the basis of our faith. So having come into the family of God by believing that, are we now going to choose to believe that in every other area of life, he is not gracious and he is not merciful? Now, absolutely, God grows us through pain and God grows us sometimes through natural consequences. We're not always freed from those things. But God is never up there taking joy in our pain. He's not like that. He's not saying, yeah, I just couldn't wait for you to touch the hot stove so you could learn that lesson. It's not the character of God. He is gracious and loving and on our side even when we're the one who made the mess, even when we're the one who screwed up. Some of you need to take communion today and just be reminded of that, that communion represents Jesus who died for you to fix a problem you created and I created. He gave us grace. He gave us what we didn't deserve and he gave us mercy. He didn't give us what we really deserved. That's the root of our faith. So back to the text. Jesus says, I'm not talking about bread. I'm talking about something else. But to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 12. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Doctrine is just belief system. So he says, beware the belief system of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Everywhere in the Bible that leaven appears, it's always a metaphor for sin or false teaching. Every single time. If you want to sound smart, it's called expositional constancy. 
That's the term for when a metaphor is consistent throughout scripture. So everywhere it appears, it represents the same thing. Leaven is always sin or false teaching every time it appears in the Bible. So what was the doctrine of the Pharisee and the Sadducees? What were their wrong beliefs? What was their leaven that Jesus was so directly warning his disciples to stay away from? So write this down. The doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees was legalism and liberalism. The doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees was legalism and liberalism, theological liberalism. I got a lot of smart sounding words in today's message. This is good. We're going to explain all of them. The Pharisees were the religious conservatives of their day. They started out with great intentions. They started out as the good guys. Their goal in coming together and becoming the Pharisees was essentially to get the nation of Israel, which had completely turned away from God, to turn back to God, go back to the scriptures and do the things that God had asked them to do as his nation, as his people, as his children. So they got really into following everything in the scriptures, but then things got weird and they began to specify all these extra laws and other things you would have to do that weren't in the scriptures anywhere. And they began to believe that the condition of your heart didn't really matter. What mattered is that you fulfilled all the external criteria. You did all the motions, you did all the rituals, and you checked all the boxes like a list. And that's what a legalist is. It's someone who has a legal list. And so if you do the things that are on their list, then you're good. If you don't do the things that are on their list, then you're bad. Some of you might have come from a church background where there was the list. There was the Bible, but there was the list. It wasn't a real list, but everybody knew what was on the list. Don't be dancing at your wedding. It's on the list. Not in the Bible, but it's on the list. Just as good as the Bible. Might as well be in the Bible because it's on the list. And Jesus hates legalism. One time he even said to the scribes and Pharisees, yes, said Jesus, what sorrow also awaits you experts in religious law for you crush people with unbearable religious demands and you never lift a finger to ease the burden. So Jesus' first warning to his disciples was, guys, don't believe, don't buy into a works-based salvation. Don't start believing that you come into the family of God because of anything that you do. Don't get caught up in thinking it's about rules and rituals. It's about the condition of your heart. Stay away from legalism. Now, the Sadducees are what we would call today naturalists. They believe that there was no spiritual dimension. There's no miracles. There's no angels or demons. There's no soul that continues to live forever. And that's why they were sad, you see. See what I did there? So Webster's Dictionary defines liberalism as a movement in modern Protestantism emphasizing intellectual liberty and the spiritual and ethical content of Christianity. So all that means is this, theological liberals believe that Christianity and the Bible are really just about being a more spiritual person and a more ethical person. That's really what it's about. It's not really about sin or Jesus dying on the cross or heaven or hell or any of this stuff. It's really just concepts to help us become better people. They weren't political liberals, they were theological liberals. They didn't believe in the whole Old Testament, only the first five books, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And when it came to the Torah, they didn't believe it was the word of God. They didn't submit to its authority. They took the view of, well, you know, the Bible is open to interpretation and it is a few thousand years now since the Torah has been written. And we are 
smarter now. We're more informed. We're more intellectual. There have been scientific and technological advances. And so with our growth in intellect, we're able to understand now that the book of Genesis is not literal. It's not actually a world that came from nowhere that was created from God, but this is really a myth. This is a fable about the beginning in all of us and the choice we all have to make to pursue goodness or pursue evil. That sort of thinking, they would say, we recognize Jesus is a great teacher, but he's not a scientist. He's a great teacher. What's important is the principles that are in the text here. The Sadducees were also known as the Herodians because they didn't believe in the Old Testament prophets. Their whole approach to the Roman occupation in Israel was, you know, let's just make the best of it. Let's figure out how to get along with them. They loved Greek culture. They loved what we would say the world, and they loved the things of it. And so they said, we've got to come up with a belief system that lets us enjoy all the perks of Greek culture. So let's just modify our theology. And they said, you know, being Jewish isn't really a belief system. It's really just a culture. So we'll take the high holy days off work. Uh, We'll still do that because we're culturally Jewish. But we can get along just fine with these guys. We can merge our belief system. No problem. And Jesus said, guys, my word is true. Don't be fooled by intellectualism that robs you of your faith, which is the only way to know me. Don't become a social movement at the expense of being my disciples. Avoid liberalism. You know, the Pharisees and Sadducees couldn't have been more ideologically different. The Pharisees were theological conservatives while the Sadducees were theological liberals, and yet they came together to plan the murder of Jesus. It's the old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Jesus was a threat to both of them. And I'll leave it to you to discern who the Pharisees and Sadducees are of our day. But I think you'll find it interesting, if you think about it and study it a bit, to see how the two groups who represent theological liberalism and legalism in our society that the faith is a list of things you must do. If you can figure out who those two groups are in our society, I think you'll find it interesting how they are working together to undermine what the Word of God says. It's just something you can do at home. If you're interested in learning more about either of these subjects, if you come from a background where your faith was very legalistic, it was a list of things you have to do, read the book of Galatians. It's all about becoming free from that. And if you struggle with theological liberalism, if you feel really drawn to the idea of, I I love feeling smart, but it's destroying my faith. If that's happening to you, go read Colossians because it deals with that issue. We're going to wrap up with this. I want to encourage you to think seriously about how you're going to respond to what Jesus has shown us in his word today about the power of our words because you've got to be intentional. You've got to make a commitment that you are going to be a person who speaks faith even to yourself. And when you need to discuss a problem, you've got to commit to always end it with, but God is bigger than my problem, or God is greater than this situation, or God's always been faithful, and I know he'll be faithful in this situation. Don't be the person who today says, you know, that was a, that was a neat message. There's some good stuff in there. But please be praying for me. You know, I'm I'm really in debt and I don't see how I'm going to get out of it. There just seems to be no hope. Don't do that. Don't do that. Jesus would say to you, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Or do you not remember? Do you not remember? Don't go back to that habit of building faith in your problem. Develop a habit 
and a practice of building faith in the faithfulness of God. Thank him in advance that he's going to be faithful in the situation you're facing right now. Couples, hear me on this. Help each other in this. Help each other in this. Don't let your spouse build faith in the problem. Cut them off if you need to. Lovingly say, babe, I know this is tough, but here's what I know too. God is faithful. And then just begin to tell them. Do you remember that last situation we were in? Remember when we didn't know how we were going to get past that or get through that? Hey, God got us through that. God got you through that. He's going to get us through this as well. So let's trust him as we go through this. Husbands, husbands, lead your family in this area. Lead your family in this area. You need to be that rock of faith in your family. When your faith is shaken, you need to go get alone with God. Work the process. Remember everything he's done before, all his faithfulness before. Get in his word. You build your faith, but you have got to be that rock for your family. You've got to be that man who says, we are not going to be a family who doubts the faithfulness of God. We are not going to speak fear in this house. We're going to go over and over the faithfulness of God. You've got to be that man for your family. I got to tell you, church, I've got story after story of God's faithfulness. Story after story. And in my personal testimony to you for my own life is I can tell you God is faithful and God is good. I've seen it with my own eyes again and again and again. He is more deserving of your trust than I could ever put into words. He deserves your trust. You're not doing him a favor by putting your trust in him. You're doing yourself a favor. He deserves your trust. And if you're struggling with fear, get God's word in you and start with Joshua 1.9. I love Joshua 1.9 because it's not a suggestion. It's not a promise. It's a command from God. It says this, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray together. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I believe the Lord is shining a light on specific areas. He is illuminating specific things in your life. And you know yourself. You know your habits. You know if you're a person who's been speaking faith or a person who's been speaking doubt. Jesus is not calling you to live in denial. He's simply causing you to take into account all the evidence of his faithfulness in your life already. And he's saying, are you ready to trust me yet? Are you ready to see and hear and understand that this situation is simply going to be the next time that I'm going to be faithful again? This is going to be the next thing you can write in your journal. This is going to be the next answered prayer. If you have been speaking doubt and fear, let me encourage you to repent. Repent of it. God deserves our trust. He doesn't deserve our fear or our doubt. Repent of it. And then just begin to pray and thank the Lord that he is being faithful and he will be faithful. 
And I believe that he's going to fill your heart with faith this morning. God sees your situation, even if you're the one who created it. Even if it's your fault, and you know it. Man, God loves you. He loves you. He cares about you. And he cares about that situation. And he's here to pull you out of it. I believe that. If you haven't taken that issue to the Lord yet, that problem, then then do it this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your love for us, the love of a good father. Thank you that we are not employees, but God, we are sons and daughters in your family. And you love us like a good father. You care about us like a good father. Help each of us to recognize your faithfulness in our lives and to trust you the way that you deserve to be trusted to honor you with our faith. Stir up faith in this room in every single one of us, God. May we speak consistently of your faithfulness and your goodness. May we be quick to remember it and slow to forget it. You are faithful, Lord. We love you.